The views expressed in the following editorial do not necessarily represent the opinions or policies of The Daily Wire, Jeremy Boring, Ben Shapiro, Ben Affleck, Ben Stiller, or any other Ben currently living or long dead or just hard to get on the phone. These views do not reflect the opinions of the person speaking or of the writer, who, to be perfectly honest, may have had one drink too many before sitting down to compose this when he clearly should have collapsed face first on the keyboard and instead produced 17 pages consisting mainly of the letters G, H, and K. All that said, let me declare here and now with an almost plausible show of apparent sincerity that I fully recognize the absolute historic importance of the current impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. If Trump was right and the election was stolen, then he's still president and must be removed from office for saying the election was stolen, as it must have been, or he'd be gone already, and this would be unnecessary. Whereas if he's wrong, and the election was not stolen, then he would no longer be president, and we would not be doing this, as we clearly must. Now, I know there are some among you who think the impeachment trial is distracting the Senate from performing other urgent duties, like spending money that doesn't exist, or holding investigations with no results, or passing a law that no one will have time to read before it utterly destroys whatever sector of the economy it was intended to reform. However, if Donald Trump is allowed to get away with whatever nonsense they're charging him with this time, what is to stop some future president from not doing the things we're pretending he did? Obviously, it is urgent that the Senate perform this useless duty rather than the usual useless duties it wastes our time with, lest anyone take them seriously, which would be, of course, absurd. Now, there are others among you who say whatever Trump did, it could not be half as bad as the Democrats kneeling on the Capitol floor to show solidarity with the people burning Portland and Minneapolis to the ground. But let me say, in the immortal words of Trump prosecutor Eric Swalwell, and I quote, Oh, Fang Fang, do that to me one more time, and I'll tell you everything I know as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Unquote. So, in conclusion, let me just say to those of you who would attack the United States Congress, Leave them alone. They're not doing anything, which, considering who they are, is a best-case scenario. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hoorah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hoorah, hooray. All right, we are back with the vast right-wing conspiracy known as Clavenon. It is good to be here. I'm so enjoying this new show. I hope you are too. Uh, it has just given me a chance to really revamp what I'm doing and rethink uh, what's happening in the country, which is hilarious, uh, if not tragic. Uh, but <laughs> please, if you are enjoying the show, please go on and give us five stars on whatever uh, platform you're listening to, please subscribe to the show. Also, you want to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the Andrew Claven YouTube channel, where if you press that little bell, we will deliver content to your home in person. Uh, we'll slide down your chimney, steal your silverware, but we'll leave something of interest. Uh, also, if you leave a comment for us and it's bigoted and obnoxious and would be banned from Twitter, we will include it in our commentary here because it'll fit right in. Today, we have something from Joshua Vandeveld, who says, masks are no longer cutting it. We need to mandate plastic bags. 
I think that actually just comes directly from Anthony Fauci, so that should be good. Uh, You know, in my opening, I was joking about the fact that the Senate's meaningless impeachment trial is distracting them from their usual meaningless activities of pretending to spend money that isn't there or of questioning some sinister deep state schnook and then sending him right back to his desk to go on doing whatever he's been doing or raising the debt ceiling from infinity to infinity plus gazillion to make sure they all continue to get paid for doing absolutely nothing. But as hilarious as the whole kabuki show of Congress now is, it's got a worrying side to it as well. The fact that the federal government is performing government rather than actually governing tells us something about the state of the nation, namely that the constitutional bodies that were handed down to us are now no longer there. They're just pretending to be there. They're just making a show of it. We're experiencing the chaos and oppression of government by agency not the least the intelligence and law enforcement agencies who've decided they have the right to manipulate the news and spy on us and criminalize our speech and our candidates. We've clearly reached the end of something. I think this is obvious, which means, I hope, that we're waiting for something new to come along. The left, with their childish gender fantasies and their ugly racial pathology and their weird tick of returning to socialism like a dog returning to its vomit, can't lay any serious claim to forging a truly American future. I'm actually not as worried about them as some, as I know some of you are. I think we see in the, that the ridiculous Biden show is just, just that. It's just a show. It's not really accomplishing anything much. The right, meanwhile, seems to be lost in internecine quarrels and nostalgia for the dualism of Reagan Cold War ideology a dangerous denial of the debt crisis, and an overblown allegiance to what we still call capitalism, but what has in fact evolved into stagnant cronyism that crushes the little guy while it bails out and kowtows to irresponsible and undemocratic giants. So where can we look to see the new thing we hope is coming, and how can we help to build the new thing? I think the answer is not going to come from philosophizing, but from experimentation, from doing. That means it's not going to come from Washington, but from individuals, small businesses, and from the states. These next four years, while our venal houseplant of a president appeases his base with fantastical leftist executive orders, these four years provide an opportunity for local defiance, local action, and hopefully local success. While the feds spend play money on play investigations and make-believe laws too long for anyone to read or understand, our governors have a chance to show what real leadership looks like. The goals are freedom, peace, and prosperity, and government that truly operates within limits and is truly responsible to the voters. If you achieve that, whether it's in Texas, Florida, South Dakota, or anywhere else, the voters may give you a chance to bring that to Washington. And meanwhile, we have to build businesses and cultural outlets like the Daily Wire. And yes, like Parler, too. We have to fight to have these businesses treated fairly and given the chance to thrive. And as always, each one of us has to stand up in our little circle and speak the truth to our bosses, to the authorities, and to our children. The Democrat version of the future looks more like 1984 than like 1776. The Republicans are are in disarray, but this country was made for and by we the people. And this is the moment while they are play-acting America for the rest of us to bring it back to life. So a lot of us have been working from home, obviously, and for some of us, that has been great, but it also makes you a target. This is true. The past year saw many cybersecurity attacks, including data breaches, network infiltrations, bulk data theft and sale, identity theft and ransomware outbreaks increase. 
the large shift of employees working remotely has coincided with an increase in attacks. A recent study suggests that remote workers have become the source of up to 20% of cybersecurity incidents that occurred in 2020. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. We put our information at risk on the internet every single day, and you could miss certain identity threats by just monitoring your credit. That's why there is LifeLock. LifeLock is a leader in identity theft protection. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats, like your social security number for sale on the dark web. And if they do detect your information has potentially been compromised, they'll send you an alert. Very useful. It's happened to me a number of times. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can see threats that you might miss on your own. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year. Go to LifeLock.com slash Clavin. That's LifeLock.com slash Clavin for 25% off. And first, you might want to stop off on the dark web and find out what you can only find out there, which is how you spell Clavin. Well, between you and me, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no easy this also is true. Which brings me to this amazing story, which is amazing both because it illustrates what I just said about building things uh, on our own, but it also illustrates what I said about the kabuki of American life, the play acting of America. And that is the story about uh, Gina Carano, obviously a MMA uh, action fighter and who became a an action star. She was in this Mandalorian, which I have to admit to you right now, I've never seen and will now never see. Uh, and she was just canceled. However, we have had this wonderful announcement where she is going to produce a film for The Daily Wire. So we have brought her on here. And that is absolutely terrific. I wanted her just to come on The Daily Wire and have a cage match with Michael Knowles. Um, that was just my fantasy, apparently, that didn't appeal to anybody else. Uh, but I can go on dreaming about it. Uh, but she's going to make a film for us, which is great. And the reason it's, it's so great is this is not one of these situations. And I've been through a lot of this, by the way, at other venues where I've worked. Uh, this is not one of these situations where someone has done something dodgy and the left is overrated reacted and canceled them, and we have to make excuses for the dodgy thing that she did. Gina Carano did nothing wrong, and their canceling of her was as cynical and as hypocritical and as disgusting as anything coming out of Hollywood, including the trash that they've been pumping into our minds and hearts for for years now. She put out a tweet, and this is what Lucasfilms makes The Mandalorian. They said, Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm, and there are no plans for her to be in the future. Her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and unacceptable. Remember those words. Her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and unacceptable. So let's hear what she said. She's also been dropped by her agency, which is UTA. She was dropped by her agency. Uh, and she was she apparently had a show she was going to star in for the Disney Plus people, and that's been canceled. Here's what she said. All right, this is apparently uh, denigrating people based on their cultural and religious I- identities in a way that is abhorrent and unacceptable to the people who employ Josh Whedon, who's been accused by everybody and his mother uh, of abusing them. All right, she said Jews were beaten in the streets not by Nazi soldiers but by their neighbors, even by children. Because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? 
Now you tell me, you tell me where the denigration comes from. Obviously, none of us like Hitler comparisons. And of course, the left would never, ever, ever compare anyone to Hitler. <laughs> you know, that would never. I mean, even one of the actors, uh, Pedro Pascal, also on The Mandalorian, has been comparing Trump to Hitler and Trump's America to Nazi Germany and all this stuff. But he doesn't get penalized because, of course, it's hypocrisy. She was fired for acting while conservative, for acting. I even think she's a libertarian. I think basically basically what she is. Nothing she said there is wrong. She's making the point. She's making the point that in order for the government to kill people with no one protesting, they first have to demonize them to the people. Let me read you a little bit of a op-ed that was in the LA Times by a journalist named Virginia Heffernan, who said that the Trump supporters next door came out and plowed her driveway without being asked to and did a great job. And she wrote, how am I going to resist demands for unity in the face of this act of aggressive niceness? She says, of course, on some level, I realize I owe them thanks, but how much thanks? Hezbollah, the Shiite Islamist political party in Lebanon, also give thing, gives things away for free. The favors Hezbollah does for people in the cities, Tyre and Sidon, probably don't involve snow plows. But like other mafias, Hezbollah tends to its own. So this guy, her neighbor, shoveled her walk, but he supports uh, Trump. So he is like a terrorist. The same, she says, is true with Louis Farrakhan, who currently helms the Nation of Islam, while the Southern Poverty Law Center, a hate group, classifies him as a dangerous anti-Semite. Much of his flock says he's just a little screwy and unfailingly magnanimous to them. In other words, they have demonized Trump supporters and conservatives so much. I mean, this impeachment trial, we'll talk a little bit about this impeachment trial, but I don't even want to give it the dignity of talking about it. But what is this impeachment trial doing? It is meant to show that anybody who supported Donald Trump and all the great things he did during his presidency, which were a lot, all of them, they're just Hitler, they're Hezbollah, they're terrorists. So Gina Carano is absolutely right. That is what they're doing. It's all a lie. Lucasfilms lying. Disney, Disney Plus lying. And the hypocrisy goes on because Disney is neck deep in China where they are raping and forcibly sterilizing and putting in prison camps the Uyghur minority, the Uyghur Muslim minority. And Disney made Mulan, which at the end had credits thanking the very people in that province who were doing that to those people. So and, and you know, they have the Shanghai Disneyland. I think they have the uh, Uyghurs wild ride to the death house. Uh, they have the torture the Uyghurs ride. I mean, it's great. It's a great camp. I'm not running it down. But Gina Carano is abhorrent because she points out that conservatives, people who believe in the Constitution of the United States, people who believe in the 1776 founding instead of the make-believe founding of 1619 invented by the New York Times, those people are abhorrent and ridiculous. And the Hollywood Reporter, these skunks, the Hollywood Reporter reported on this. They said this was not the first time Carano uh, has been the focus of social media ire for her political comments. Last November, she issued contentious tweets Ooh, contentious tweets. What did they do? She mocked mask wearing and she falsely suggested voter fraud. Here's what she said. Now, here's what she said about voter fraud. This, this is really interesting. She said we should wear blindfolds as well as masks so we can't see what's going on. It's actually pretty funny. But here's what she said about the uh, voter fraud. She said, we need to clean up the election process so we are not left feeling the way we do today. Put laws in place that protect us against voter fraud. Investigate every state. 
film the counting, flush out the fake votes, require ID, make voter fraud end in 2020, fix the system. Now, the idea that the election wasn't stolen is an idea that it is absolutely fair to debate, though you can't debate it on Twitter because you even suggest it, uh, they'll shut you down. So it is a, that's a fair debate, but you can't have that debate. But to say that there's voter fraud is nothing less than the truth. It's only in North Korea where there's no voter fraud because it's all fraud. There is voter fraud in every election. There always is, there always has been, and there was probably more in this one. So they're just lying about it, but they don't care. And by the way, this is the industry, the Hollywood industry, that for 70 years has been telling us, oh, boo-hoo, we were blacklisted for being communists. They have made Film after film after film. Remember, they made the front. Uh, they made a hero out of Dalton Trumbo, who was a terrible human being, good writer, but a terrible human being, uh, who basically was against fighting Hitler as long as Hitler was in league with Stalin. That's how much of a communist he was. But they made him a hero in the movie Trumbo. They had the front. They had the way we were, guilty by suspicion. They've been making movies about, oh, poor Hollywood has been blacklisted. We're blacklisted for supporting not just communism, not just the Soviets, but the Stalinists. That's who they supported. And they're boo-hoo. They lost their jobs because of that. And by the way, I don't agree they should have lost their jobs, but they've been complaining about it for 70 years. But now if you support the Constitution, if you support James Madison, if you support George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, now you are blacklisted. This is pure, pure blacklisting. And the reason I call this all kind of a comedy, kind of a show, is because they know all this. They know they're liars. They know, Disney Films knows they're neck deep in with China. They don't care. They don't care. You know, a lot of conser conservatives are very hesitant to, uh, to actually want to boycott these companies. But I think this is a case where Shutting down your Disney Plus is the right thing to do. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the Daily Wire got me a Disney Plus uh, subscription so I could review Hamilton, but I don't subscribe to it. But if I did, I'd cut it off right now. I mean, this is, it, it is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I just want to take a look at two other things before I stop, get off this subject. And again, I want to congratulate The Daily Wire. I'm really proud of The Daily Wire for bringing Gina on. I'm really excited about it. Also, I find her really uh, attractive, so I'm hoping I get to meet her before she beats the crap out of Knowles. So, but, but here at the same time, remember uh, Governor Cuomo, the great governor, how he won an Emmy for being such a, or for playing a great governor? Now, and we kept saying, and Trump kept saying, you know, he killed a lot of people by putting them, by putting sick people who were recovering from the Chinese flu in the nursing homes with old people, he really caused a lot of deaths. He was really a terrible governor. He was really the worst governor in the country. Now, according to the New York Post, Governor Cuomo's top aide privately apologized to Democratic lawmakers for withholding the state's nursing home death toll from the Chinese flu, telling them we froze out of fear that the true numbers would be used against us by federal prosecutors. The stunning admission of a cover-up was made by Secretary to the Governor Melissa DeRosa during a video conference call with state Democratic leaders which she, in which she said the Cuomo administration had rebuffed a legislative request for the tally in August because right around the same time, uh, Trump turns this into a giant political football. So they lied, and it's all Donald Trump's fault. Why? Because Trump was telling the truth. Trump was telling the truth. Instead of giving a mea culpa to the grieving family members of more than 13,000 dead seniors or the critics who say the health department spread COVID-19 in the care facilities with a March 25th state health department directive, instead of all that, they blamed it on Trump for being right. That was Trump's sin, that he was right and he threatened to prosecute them for it. And so they lied. They lied. And yet Cuomo 
in the, in the reality show, in the reality show of America, in the make-believe America we're all living in now, Cuomo was the great governor. And one more thing, and then I'll, I'll get off the subject, but one more thing is this Lincoln Project. Bill Crystal's uh, attack Trump as pretending to be a Republican while attacking Trump project. This now turns out to have been an absolute cesspit of corruption. One of their uh, founders, John Weaver, has now been accused multiple times of harassing young men sexually. And apparently, according to the Associated Press, they knew about this. See, these guys have no protection because they're not Democrats. The press will go after them now that the election is over. So they're really in trouble. The AP also says that huge amounts of their donations uh, went to their friends and consultants and all this stuff. It was just a funnel, uh, basically enriching their friends. It was a grift. The whole thing was a grift. This is what I'm talking about when we have things like, oh, the, the evil Donald Trump. All we've heard about for four years is the evil Donald Trump. And Trump is a flawed guy. I've always said so. It has nothing to do with that. The problem, of course, is this huge, huge theater of dishonesty that is created by now Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube, NBC, ABC, CBS, the Washington Post, the New York Times, this great fiction machine that we're surrounded by, that we're bathed in, that we're drowning in, that has created this big fake America in which these creeps and criminals and censors and un-Americans are the good guys. So you know how rested you feel when the alarm goes off the morning after a deep sleep? What's it like? Because I have no idea. I never sleep. But that's why I'm glad I have a Helix Sleep mattress. Because when I'm lying awake, I like to be comfortable. And Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. And whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper, or in my case, a not sleeper, they can give you the perfect mattress. Helix Sleep is rated number the number one mattress by GQ and Wired. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Take the two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life and give me the best lying awake of my life. Helix mattresses have a 10-year warranty. They're made right in America, and you can try it out for 100 nights risk-free, and they will pick it up for you for free if you don't love it, but you will. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Get up to 200 bucks off at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. And I know you're lying awake at night. You think, gee, I'm comfortable, but I don't know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. China. Don't you miss that? <laughs> I do miss it. And the reason I miss it is because China is so much of the reality of what's happening today. We don't like to talk about it. Americans don't care what's going on in other countries. They only care if the country is a threat to us and China is a threat to us. But also it's an important philosophical entity because it has invented a new form of oppression that is perfectly fine with our elites, and not just leftist elites. I mean, this is something that actually goes beyond left and right. It actually just goes to wealth and power and a sort of sense of globalism. So I talked about this a long time ago. A couple of months ago, I talked about this, about the fact that guys like Jack Dorsey and, uh, you know, the people running Google and the people running uh, Apple, that they're not opposed to China, they're not going to fight with China because they are China, because they essentially embody this philosophy in which the rich get rich, but they keep 
and they don't stop you from getting rich. They give you all kinds of good things except the freedom to express yourself as you wish. That's essentially what happens in China. You can get very rich as long as you don't say that there's something wrong with the government, then you vanish. And that's what happens on Twitter too, right? Except they don't kill you, but they just disappear you if you say something that is outside of what they believe to be not the truth. They don't believe it's the truth. They just believe it's what you should be saying. So now Lee Smith, a talented journalist, has written this really good article for Tablet Magazine. It's called The 30 Tyrants, which is an unfortunate title because it kind of doesn't tell you what it's about. But the reason he calls it The 30 Tyrants is that after the Peloponnesian War, when Sparta defeated Athens, they installed an Athenian government of 30 tyrants in Athens. They were called the tyrants by those who hated them. Of 30 people in Athens who were Athenians, but who had always hated democracy. Remember, democracy was new, and so people were saying, well, this is terrible. Why should you give the rabble a, a, you know, a word and a voice in what's happening in the government? So they installed these uh, Athenians who yet hated Athenian democracy to rule. It didn't last long, but, he, but what Lee Smith is saying in this article was he was comparing our government to the 30 tyrants in Sparta because their allegiance is elsewhere. And he talks about, he he traces this back to a 2009 column by Thomas Friedman. A lot of people, Thomas Friedman writes in the New York Times, a former newspaper, he's on Knucklehead Row. uh, And and Friedman was, this is a famous column where he says, one party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks, but when it's led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today, it can also have great advantages. That one party can just impose the politically difficult but critically important policies needed to move a society forward in the 21st century. And basically what he says is these errant Republicans, these troglodyte Republicans, these deplorable humans are getting in the way of us experts, our brilliant plans to run the world. And this is what you're hearing in Davos with the Great Reset. We're going to make sure that the economies of the world address our shared concerns. And if those aren't your shared concerns, you are disappeared. If you say, you know, this climate uh, emergency is just a computer model, and therefore, just logically, it might be completely wrong, you're gone. They don't kill you like in China. They just silence you. They take away your TV show. They take away your friend, your friends' uh, ratings on Facebook or whatever. They make it difficult for you to be heard. They make it impossible for you to be heard. If you say, you know, actually every cell of your body is gendered, so you can't actually go from being a man to a woman, you're gone. They don't kill you. They just silence you as long. But but you get a lot of money. You get cheap iPhones. The little slave labor in China makes those iPhones even cheaper. Don't worry about it that you're out of work because look at all the money you save on your iPhone. So Smith talks about this and, and Tucker Carlson had him on. Uh, and he basically talks about the fact that the elites have left the American building. This is cut number two. Why people are coming across the why people are coming across the border in such profound numbers. It all looks crazy until you realize there's a reason it's going on. And the reason is, is because the oligarchy that runs this country now is not primarily loyal to the United States. They do not care about the amount of damage they do to America. They don't care about the amount of damage they do to Americans. That's part of the system. Their primary loyalty is to their relationship to the Communist Chinese Party. That is their center of gravity. It's the source of their wealth privilege and prestige. 
And I think the important thing to realize here, Smith, I think, has a slightly conspiratorial attitude toward this. He, you know, he kind of pictures it more as a conspiracy than I do. I don't think it's a conspiracy like in the James Bond movies where they sit at a long table and say, you know, how's the extortion going in Poland and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think it's like that. I think it's a conspiracy of interests. It may not, they may not like the Chinese. They may think, well, it's awfully nasty what they're doing about the Uyghurs, but think of the money we save on iPhones. You know, that's that's kind of what more what they're thinking about. As he says, it's the source of wealth. It's a big market that Disney can, you know, uh, Disney can make a lot of money uh, being kowtowing to the people who kill the Uyghurs as long as they get rid of Gina Carano when she so- speaks about freedom. That, you know, that's that's because that's the real problem. The real problem is the girl on the Mandalorian, not the prison camps in China, because we're thanking them in China in Mulan. You know, that that's the whole thing. It's just following their interests, following the money, which is why I continually tell you that to worship capitalism instead of realizing that we have to have values that underlie capitalism, that go before capitalism, is a big mistake. And he goes on to talk about Donald Trump. Smith goes on to talk about Donald Trump. And this is really important because one of the things he says is that Trump has, has actually changed, even among establishment politicians, he has turned the tide a little bit against China. Uh, they're, they're keeping, even the Biden administration is keeping some of the tariffs uh, against China in place. But one of the things that Trump failed at, and it's, it's really a shame, was he didn't understand I think how much, how entrenched the opposition was and how much it mattered that he have a staff, that he staffed his administration and the agencies with people who would support him. Because basically uh, he stood alone. And while he may have felt he could do that, you just can't. They're just too powerful. Here's Smith again. Cut three. Now, one of the interesting things that happened during during the Donald Trump presidency, because Donald Trump started calling these people out, I think that Donald Trump didn't even have that clear a sense of how tied in, how extensive this network was. One of the examples I, I, I mentioned is, for instance, whoever would have put uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook and LeBron James in the same family album. But there they are, sure enough, because they both rely, uh, their wealth relies on the two same things, cheap Chinese labor and a growing Chinese consumer market. And if you look across, this is not just, it's not just entertainment, it's not just tech. Uh, it goes into the corporate worlds. It goes into finance. Unfortunately, it, it affects our government throughout. And he, he talks about this. He elaborates on how it affects our government because it's not just business. It is government as well. And this again, this is on Tucker Carlson, Lee Smith, talking about his article in Tablet Magazine, The 30 Tyrants. Here he is talking about how it affects the government. This is cut four. One of the most astonishing revelations was a, was a memo that former DNI John Ratcliffe wrote uh, regarding uh, regarding the CIA, regarding their intelligence analysis. CIA management uh, was apparently bullying analysts, saying they didn't like their analysis of China because they were worried about the policies it might encourage, meaning Donald Trump's policies, who was hard on, chi- on China. Therefore, CIA management was protecting China from solid analysis. It's astonishing, but take it one step further. Remember who owns... Uh, who owns the cloud on which all of the CIA's information is collected. And that's Jeff Bezos, who is China's number one distributor in the United States. So as and this is not necessarily a Democrat Republican thing. And as we're looking at the Biden administration, the signals so far are mixed. They've taken some hard lines with China. Uh, they, Like I said, they kept the tariff on. On the other hand, they rejoined the World Health Organization and basically 
abandoned, scuttled any examination on whether China is responsible for the Chinese flu out of Wuhan. They couldn't possibly re- be responsible for that. It's just one of those things. But, but you know, they've canceled that. Uh, they have go- they're going easier than Trump did on the investigation into these Confucius Institutes by which China has been spying on our academies and has also been basically telegraphing to Chinese students that they're still under the watchful eye of the Chinese. But what makes all this part of the kabuki show of government is they're impeaching Donald Trump, no longer the president, but they've got to impeach him so they can remove him from office that he's already been removed from. But who's prosecuting him? Eric Swalwell. Eric Swalwell, who was bang-banging fang-fang, who was uh, basically dipping it in a Chinese honeypot, a a Chinese spy, apparently maybe having, allegedly, let's say, having an affair with her, uh, but he hasn't been removed from the Senate Intelligence Committee. And he gets up and he makes this speech against Donald Trump. Let's cut 19. I hope the Democrats, and even more importantly, the weak and ineffective rhino section of the Republican Party are looking at the thousands of people pouring into D.C. They won't stand for a landslide victory to be stolen. At Senate Majority Leader, at John Cornyn, at Senator John Thune. So he's reading this tweet that's supposedly inciting this riot. Turns out he actually put a blue checkmark on the tweet tweet to make it sound more important when the woman didn't have a blue checkmark. And he then said that she was calling in the cavalry, but she was calling in the Calvary, uh, meaning she wanted to have a prayer meeting. So this is the guy who's basically uh, having it on with a Chinese spy, still on the Senate Intelligence Committee, telling us that Donald Trump is a danger to the nation. If that is not showtime, if that's not reality TV instead of reality, I don't know what is. You know, as I sat down to start the show today, perfect timing, my doorbell rang and it was the flowers I ordered for my wife for Valentine's Day. I wanted her to have them over the weekend. You want to be able to respond wherever you are to people coming to your door. And that's why a ring doorbell is a great thing to have with ring. No matter who comes to your door, good guy, bad guy, you can see him. You can talk to him no matter where you are right on your phone. You'll never miss a visitor, whether it's your neighbor, your dinner, your groceries, or the flowers you got your wife. I love having the Ring video doorbell, and I've actually added some Ring security cameras around the house too, so you can check on your home without having to get out of bed. You can see what's going on. And right now, you can get a special offer on the Ring welcome kit at ring.com slash Clavin. It comes with the Ring's video doorbell 3 and Chime Pro, the perfect way to upgrade your front door and start your Ring experience. Go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. Anyone shows up at your door, no matter where you are, you can say to him, how do you spell Clavin? If he knows, call the police. The Democrats fight like hell to make sure anyone can be impeached for anything. (laughs) You know, what makes the impeachment such a phony uh, reality show pantomime is is not so much what Donald Trump did or didn't do, but who the people are prosecuting him. That's what makes it so absurd. You know, I'm I'm really uh, kind of upset a little bit with some of us on the right who have taken this attitude uh, that that Trump can do no wrong. First of all, the idea that anyone can do no wrong is uh, absurd. And the idea that Trump, who's a flawed guy, can do no wrong is also obviously 
absurd. And, and thirdly, the idea that we have to attach ourselves to an individual as opposed to the principles he may or may not represent uh, is wrong. And that, this is different than calling balls and strikes. I said this before. I don't call balls and strikes because I believe only one team is, is ever playing for America. I don't believe the left is ever playing for Amer- the American way. They themselves say they're not. They say they hate America. They say they're against 1776. They say we're racist in our bloodstream. So they, I'm not calling balls and strikes on that. I'm going to support the guy who is opposing them, no question about it. But that doesn't mean he's always right, and it doesn't mean he's always helping the cause. And with Trump, as I keep saying, I think he had a genuinely great one-term presidency, and I think he did the wrong thing at the end. I think he did the wrong thing. And I don't think he incited the riots, but I think he did the wrong thing. And I think he was slow to uh, say, let's let's get out of there to call on the rioters uh, on January 6th to stop. So, you know, I think they have a case against him, something to say about him and all this. He's out of office. So I think the entire I mean, does the Senate have nothing to do? I mean, that's my question. Do they have absolutely nothing to do but impeach a guy who the people already voted out of office? Do they literally, I mean, they look at their calendar and say, ah, you know, there's nothing nothing on my nothing happening in the country. I, You know, I'm just a senator. I'm just the legislator. I just make the laws. We don't need any laws. We don't need any, you know, nothing needs to be reformed. Nothing needs to be fixed. We don't need to do anything. Everything is tickety-boo. So let's impeach the president since we're not doing anything else. But the fact that the people who let BLM, Black Lives Matter, ha, 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 and Antifa riot and burn and kill across the country for months on end and told us it was justified uh, that they are now making a big emotional show about how evil Donald Trump is, that to me is just pure show. It's just pure reality TV. So for instance, I, I don't believe that the election was stolen, even though I do believe there's fraud. And I believe it was rigged by the press. There's no question about that. I've talked about that at length. But I don't believe it was stolen with the Dominion machines. I don't believe that stuff. So so let's say that these people uh, who invaded the Capitol were being uh, made emotional over something that didn't happen. That's also true about systemic racism and the narrative that police are killing black people left and right. That's just not happening. That's not true. Uh, George Floyd, the idea that George Floyd is all over their pictures of him all over with little angel wings, this guy who held a woman at gunpoint while his friend's home invaded her, uh, this guy who was uh, had a, a level of fentanyl in his body when he died that makes it even questionable whether it was the police, the police were wholly responsible for his death in spite of the fact that they acted badly. You know, all of this stuff was used emotionally to gin up violence for political reasons, and the idea that the people who did it on one side are impeaching the guys they say did it on the other side is to me just um, remarkable and only made possible by this thing we've been complaining about now for 20 years, uh, the complete monopoly of the press by one side of the question, the monopoly of the press, the monopoly of the academy, all of this stuff. And it's just, you know, and all of the rhetoric is ridiculous. You know, here's here's Democrat, uh, California Democrat, I think, Jackie Spire, uh, during the impeachment. I just want to have a couple of cuts of this because I don't want to cover it in detail because it's just it's just such a fake. It's such a fraud that I don't even want to dignify it by covering it. But I just want to hit a couple of points. Here's Jackie Spire talking about this. Cut 23. I intend, to, like so many of my colleagues, to um, put into um, words that every American can hear for decades to come, how close we came to losing our democracy. This is a man that intended to overtake this government. And 
it's astonishing to me that so few of my colleagues on the Republican side, even after witnessing that, even after being part of that insurrection, are unwilling to do their jobs and protect the Constitution and protect the, the democracy. What makes this so interesting is this phrase, our democracy. They're defending our democracy. Dan Henninger writes about this in the Wall Street Journal. He says, when progressives refer to our democracy, what they mean is their democracy. To be a member of their democracy, one has to share their beliefs. If you're not in, you're out. And if you're out, they may come after you for being a threat to democracy. Other than carbon emissions, what could be worse. In the Washington Post recently, Stacey Abrams, the Georgia Democrat, wrote a piece titled, Our Democracy Faced a Near-Death Experience. Four paragraphs in, Ms. Abrams places Republicans outside democracy. Here's what she says. Our democratic system faces extraordinary threats today because of sustained attacks from Republican leaders who throw up roadblocks to voting and among the worst actors stoke the flames of white supremacy and hypernationalism to cling to power. Going back to what Gina Carano said, this is demonizing, demonizing ordinary, decent Americans who are Republicans, who are conservatives like me, probably like you, who believe in the things that they believe in. These guys are white supremacists. They are a threat to our democracy, which can only be uh, a place where men can become women, where climate change is a threat, and where requiring ID is suppressing the vote. I mean, this is the incredible thing about the narrative we're getting from the left is that the idea that we require, we want people to identify themselves in order to vote, that's suppressing the vote. But the idea that they are making it possible for anybody to vote, even if he is a far a, an illegal alien, that is not voter fraud. So if you say it's voter fraud, you're fired. But if you say uh, you need basically a, a, the same kind of identification you need to buy a bottle of liquor, uh, you are suppressing the vote. And that's pure narrative. That is pure kabuki. Absolutely just framing things in a way where one person who disagrees with the Democrats is evil and is a threat to our democracy. And the other side of this, I just have to play Ayanna Presley, her comments on this impeachment cut 24. As a black woman, to be barricaded in my office, using office furniture and water bottles, on the ground, in the dark, that terror, those moments of terror, is familiar in a deep and ancestral way for me. And I want us to do everything to ensure that a breach like this never occurs at the Capitol, but I want us to address the evil and scourge that is white supremacy in this nation. Now, I I would like to address this as a black woman as well, because I'm just as bald as she is. And I would like to say that this is absolute garbage. This white supremacy thing is also absolute garbage. And the reason I say it's garbage is because Joe Biden has made it clear, the Biden administration, because I don't know how much of this is actual Joe Biden, but Biden has made it clear that he is enslaved to the teachers unions, and he is not going to do a damn thing to open up the schools that teach our children, especially our minority children, many of whom are black. He's not going to do a thing for them. So everything they say means nothing. Everything they say is a lie. When they talk about white supremacy, they're just talking about we're, we're enslaved to the teachers unions. We're not going to teach your children anything. When they talk about reparations, it's because they're enslaved to the teachers unions. They're not going to teach your children anything. When they talk about anti-racism, that just means don't pay don't pay attention to this. Look over there. Look quick, a squirrel, because we are not going to teach your children anything. We are not going to do anything that makes it possible for your children to thrive in America because 
the the right is our white supremacists. It's like the woman saying that the Cuomo administration hid the fact that they were killing people because Donald Trump said they were killing people. It's like they are not going to help your children, your black children, because of white supremacy. Everything they do, every word out of their mouth, every one of their supposed ideals is a dodge. And this is the thing that is kind of becoming weirdly upsetting on the one hand, but it's weirdly dreamlike on the other. They do things and you realize it, it doesn't matter because eventually reality is going to catch up with them. Eventually it's going to become clear that men can't become women. Eventually women are going to start to say, you know, I actually want to be able to be a woman and have my values and have my life and have my kind of life and not be told that my kind of life is worthless to people, not be told that I'm less than people, not be told that somebody can just put on a dress and, and tell my daughter that she can't compete with him on a track field or on a, uh, a sporting field. You know, there people, eventually reality does have a voice and eventually reality comes back. We just like it to come back now. But in the meantime, in the meantime, children are not being educated. Black people are going to suffer terribly from this. Minorities, poor people of all kinds are going to suffer terribly from this. And mean, And they're talking about Oh, you know, Ayanna Presley had a deep ancestral fear because a couple of clowns ran into the Capitol building. Again, not justifying the riots, but the way they are phrasing this and the, the drama they are making it, comp- making of it, completely, completely ignores the fact that their people, their rioters, the Black Lives Matter rioters, burned down black neighborhoods, killed a black retired cop, ruined black businesses. That doesn't matter. It's all about the power. It is all, all of it, a show. So let's take a hypothetical, right? Your car isn't working. It needs a part. What do you want to do? Do you want to get in your car and pretend to drive to the auto parts store, look at it, talk to a make-believe person because you're not really there who looks on his make-believe computer and finds you a part that you can't even have because you're not there because your car is not working? No. You want to go to rockauto.com. Why? Because it's so much fun to say rockauto.com. Plus, you can get a part for your car just by going on your computer. Rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Their catalog is unique. It's remarkably easy to navigate. You can see all the parts available for your vehicle very quickly and choose the brand specifications and prices you prefer. An amazing selection, reliably low prices, and plus, especially, you get to say rockauto.com. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck and write Clavin. You can't just write Clavin. You have to write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us box so they know we sent you and you got to spell it. Spell it like a K. L-A-V-A-N. Yeah! That's the way. <laughs> no easy claiming. <laughs> I just make it look that easy. <laughs> so we have the mailbag coming up uh, later, but there's a letter that was in the mailbag, I believe it was last week, from Bryson, uh, that I think is just an interesting subject for discussion uh, he says, greetings and hallucinations, Lord Clavin, master of the multiverse. My pastor recently preached a sermon online where he said that we should follow government lockdown rules because of Romans 13.1, which says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. What is your response when Christians use this verse to say that we must follow the insane China virus restrictions? Uh, P.S. I look forward to your show every week. It's great to have you back. Well, thank you for that. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is this is an important thing because the Christian response to politics is not at all 
what I think either the right or the left says it is, basically assumes that it is. But to just look at this verse that he's talking about, uh, this is Paul and Paul uh, the Romans, which is the Roman, Romans, the letter to the Romans is almost the uh, establishing letter, the establishing epistle of the church kind of gives you the Pauline theology of the church. And he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience." Uh, this is also why you pay taxes for the authorities of God's servants who give their full time to governing. Now, a lot of us hear this and we immediately react with horror. You know, obviously governments can be terrible and to submit to a government that is telling you to do the wrong thing or is doing the wrong thing is a, uh, you know, obviously an act, an immoral act, not a moral act. And to say just that, oh, well, governments are appointed by God, therefore they will do the right thing is clearly untrue. But it comes from a a moment with uh, uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is they the Pharisees try to tempt Jesus into taking on the Roman authorities, which Jesus really never does. Uh, and he says that the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, the followers of Herod. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them whose image is this and whose inscription. And of course it was Caesar's. And he said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And it says they heard that and they left him alone. Now, the funny thing about this, of course, is that all of the disciples, at least according to tradition, all of the apostles uh, were martyred by the government. They were all killed by the government. So including Paul. So Paul saying, always obey the government. Somewhere there's a discrepancy in that Paul was beheaded by the government for following Christ. And obviously the distinction uh, that Jesus makes, um, the distinction Jesus makes between what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God is at the heart of this distinction. The reason I think that the people sometimes wanted Jesus to defy the authorities uh, and ma many people, some people say that Judas betrayed Jesus because he was disappointed that Jesus was not a rebel, that Jesus was not trying to bring down Roman rule. Uh, Jesus, uh, Judas, as you know, is called G Judas Iscariot. And some people think that that's a transposition of words. And really, he was not Iscariot. He was really Sicarius, an assassin, uh, one of the rebels. Um, that's, it's just a theory, but there it is. And so he was disappointed that Jesus would not be uh, a rebel bringing back Jewish rule. And I think a lot of this, and I think a lot of the idea that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah was going to be a political figure, a warrior figure, instead of who he turned out to be, stems from 
a, a misunderstanding of David's role, King David's role in Jewish history, that King David, the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. He was going to bring back the kingdom of David, except it was going to be the kingdom that ruled forever. And as you remember, some of you who know the Bible will remember what happened was that the Jews lived freely. They lived only under the rule of God. They were guided by the prophets who spoke for God. Uh, when they needed a military leader, one of the so-called judges like Samson would rise up and lead them and, and, and they would follow him. But then they would go back to tending their own lives and making their own decisions and they were free. And at one point when the, priest, the uh, prophets became corrupt, they went to the head prophet who was Samuel at the time and they said, we want a king like everybody else. Everybody else gets a king and their countries are doing great and we're in a mess. We want a king. And Samuel didn't want to give them a king. He wanted them to be ruled by God. And he went to God and God said to Samuel, don't worry. The people are not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them the king. And Samuel went out and he described to the people what kings were like, what governments were like, how they took things over. And they got their king. Their first king was terrible, uh, Saul, and he went mad and was oppressive. But finally, they got the King David who built them the empire that they were obviously yearning for. But in doing that, he brought them into the cycle of history so that they had their empire. And then like all empires, the empire fell and they became the slaves of other empires. And so they thought, well, when the Messiah comes back, he'll essentially do what David did, but forever. He'll establish the empire that lasts forever. What they didn't understand was that God will take even our mistaken desires, in this case, the desire for a king, and he will use it to his purposes. He will use it to the good. And so what was wonderful about David, who was a, a warlord and very flawed, very uh, sinful guy, but what was wonderful about David was his following of God. He was completely committed to following God. He did things that could hurt him politically as long as he was, felt he was following God. And what they didn't understand is that the king to come was going to be someone like Jesus who was going to bring the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of political victories, all right? So they made this mistake. And, but obviously it would also be a mistake to say that the government is in, instituted by God and therefore is always good and should always be obeyed. And as I say, Paul and Jesus and every one of the disciples and the, the apostles were killed by the government because they were in re rebellion. So how did that happen? How did it happen if they weren't going to defy the government, if they weren't going to take up arms against the government, if they weren't going to uh, you know, refuse to pay taxes? Why did they all get killed? And the reason is the rule of God threatens the rule of men just by being there. The rule of God is based on immutable moral truths, and the rule of men is based on politics and convenience and contingency, right? And because if when you become wicked and full of lies, you have to silence the truth. The truth anywhere is a threat. That's why they knock people off Twitter for saying men can become women, not because they're good people, but because that threatens the truth that men can't become women. And again, you know, Nobody wants to be unkind to transgender people. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with basically speaking in truth or speaking the truth. But because governments are corrupt, because they depend on lies, they have to say, if you speak the truth, you will be silenced. If you say, well, you know, climate change may just be a, a scam to install uh, socialism or a more powerful government, you have to be silenced. You can't, they can't just say, no, we're going to do this. We're going to beat you in the ballot box. We're going to out-argue you. We're going to debate you and win. They have to crush you. They have to do it. And so all you have to do is live in truth and you will be destroyed. That is enough defiance of the government. So then you have the question, if governments are corrupt and if they do bad things, 
why doesn't Jesus take them on? And this has been a complaint about Christianity for a long time. Why didn't Christian, you know, some, all of the people who defied, for instance, Southern slavery, all of them were deeply religious people who felt that this was a sin against the image of God to enslave people as blacks were enslaved in the South was a sin against the image of God. But many people read the Bible and said, no, you're supposed to obey the authorities and these these hierarchies of authority are installed by God and therefore the slave should obey their masters. That's what the Bible says. It says so in the scriptures. And of course, we understand that they were making a mistake, but what mistake were they making? If Paul says we're supposed to obey authorities because authorities come from God, what mistake were they making? And why didn't Jesus stand up against the Romans and say, like so many did, and say, you're enslaving us? So speaking of lying awake all night, you really want a great pillow, and my pillow is a great pillow. My pillow products don't go flat. When you're up all night like me, you want to be comfortable, and with a my pillow, you will be. You can wash and dry them as many times as you want. They maintain their shape, and best of all, they are made in the US of A. If you don't have a MyPillow, or if you know someone who doesn't have one, now is the time to get one because for a limited time, MyPillow is offering their premium MyPillows for their lowest price ever. You can get a queen size premium MyPillow, which is regularly $69.98, which is almost 70 bucks. You can get it now for only $29.98. That's 40 bucks in saving. Kings are only $5 more. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Square. There you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, I have one of those, and MyPillow towel sets. Or you can call 800-651-1148 and use promo code DAILYWIRE. Let me give you that again. It's 800-651-1148 and use promo code Daily Wire. To answer this question, let me digress or give you my answer to this question. Let me digress for a minute and talk about Edmund Burke, the famous British MP of the 18th century and one of the, fa- he's probably the founder in a lot of ways of modern conservative thought. And the famous thing about Edmund Burke is that he did not support the French Revolution. He foresaw the terror. He foresaw what was going to happen, that it was going to become an oppression, that it was going to lead to war. He foresaw all that. But he did support he did support the rights of the rebels in America. What was the difference? The difference was tradition. The difference was that the French were basically saying, we are going to wipe out all tradition and we are going to establish this new wonderful rule of reason. You know, all the kings are going to be wiped away. The last uh, king is going to be strangled with the entrails of the last priest. We're going to rename the days. We're going to rename the months. Everything is going to be new. Just like we see these guys now who are tearing down our traditions, tearing down the statues of Lincoln, uh, tearing down the statues of George Washington, like the people in San Francisco, the buffoons in San Francisco, who uh, say they're going to take Abraham Lincoln's name off schools because he didn't show that he believed that black lives matter, right? They want to get rid of traditions because all those traditions are uh, oppressive and we are going to be free. We're going to have this new kind of freedom. What's the, the problem there? What's the logic of that? And the logic of that is everything you believe 
comes from your traditions. You didn't just, the, the, your idea of justice didn't just fall on you like the rain from heaven. Your idea that racism is wrong. Racism was not wrong and it's still not wrong in many countries. It is wrong here because of the ideas that have come down to us. They come down to us through Christianity. They come down to us through Greece and Rome. But these are the ideas that form us. So when you tear down those traditions in your ignorance and your stupidity as the left is doing now, you basically are, are tearing away the foundations of the very ideas you're trying to establish. And that is the, the contradiction of radical politics. The contradiction of radical politics is when the French revolutionaries said life, liberty, right? When they said, you know, liberty, fraternity, equality, those ideas came from someplace. They came from their traditions. Every moment leading up to the person saying liberty, eternity, liberty, fraternity, equality, every moment created those ideas. So to say, oh, this evil past, this oppressive past, these evil kings, these evil priests have to be gotten rid of, is to say the very ideas that I'm trying to establish are illegitimate. It's a paradox, right? It's a, it's a conflict of interest. And that's why when you see people tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln, I'm thinking of the statue, I think it's in Philadelphia, that showed Lincoln raising uh, a, a black man to his feet. And they said, well, he's, the black man is bowing down to Abraham Lincoln. That's a terrible thing. Well, in fact, when the slaves were freed and Lincoln came to visit, the slaves were uh, traveling with the army, the slaves did fall at his feet in gratitude. They did fall at his feet because he knew they knew he was lifting them up. So when you get rid of the tradition, you're actually getting rid of your own ideas. That's the paradox of radical um, po of politics. So what did, what did Jesus do that got rid of this radical, the, the fact that on one hand, governments can be corrupt and they can be in unjust and they can have unjust traditions, and on the other hand, the traditions, the ideas that led to that moment when you see that something your government is doing is wrong, created your idea that it was wrong, if you see what I mean. In other words, we knew that slavery was wrong because somebody had said all men are created equal. But somebody said all men are created equal because there was a Christian religion to teach him that. So when the people said, you know, oh, these evil Christians, they didn't stand up against slavery. They helped get rid of slavery because of the ideas. They created the idea that slavery was wrong. So how did this happen and how did Jesus deal with it? Well, here is a story and it's a, a really famous story and a very interesting story for a lot of reasons. Uh, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. He was preaching in the temple and a crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that could, they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And we don't know what he wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, right? The people who knew best until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she said, no, Lord, no one condemned me. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, what's interesting about this is nobody likes the story. Leftists don't like it. Conservatives don't like it. The leftists don't like it because Jesus doesn't stand up 
against the law. But conservatives don't like it because they say if you don't stone her, then everyone will commit adultery, right? If you don't keep the values in place, then everyone will do the bad thing. And, and conservatives go to incredible lengths to take the meaning out of the story. Some of them, there even is a movement uh, to take this story out of the Gospels because it's not in the earliest copies of the Gospels we have. And so they want to take it out of the Gospels saying it's illegitimate. It was put in later on by a copyist. But in fact, there are tales like this very early on about Jesus. And if that doesn't sound like Jesus to you, I, I think that sounds exactly like him. I'm sure the story is precisely true. So why doesn't he say, why doesn't Jesus say, this is a terrible law? He does say that, you know, he says that about the law on divorce. He changes the law on divorce. Why doesn't he say, you can't stone somebody for committing adultery. That's a savage, terrible thing to, to do. And I think the reason is this, that he knows that the tradition, the tradition and the commandment not to commit adultery is an important one. It is where the rights of women to a large degree come from. The idea that your marriage to a woman should be faithful is an idea that developed over time. Remember, in Jesus' time, there were people who were married to many women, but the idea that the, the whole idea that men should also be faithful, should not commit adultery, that develops slowly over time. The church imposes it on the idea of marriage. It is where the, idea, the rights of women come from. Jesus does not condemn this woman. Even though he has spoken against adultery, he doesn't condemn her. He, he forgives her. And he says to people, let he is, him who is without sin throw the first stone. And of course, nobody's without sin. So he lets the law stand, but he makes it impossible. He makes it impossible to fulfill. He makes it impossible to fulfill by rewriting the hearts of the people who have to enforce the law. And this to me is one of the great political innovations of all time. Instead of changing the law, even an unjust law, he first establishes in the hearts of the people why that law cannot be enforced as it stands, and the law rewrites itself. And this is why I feel the church has shot itself in the foot by becoming political. You know, in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, The Screwtape Letters are a wonderful book. You should read it. It takes about an hour to read the whole book. But it's basically about a demon, a chief demon, teaching a, uh, an apprentice demon how to destroy religion and how to destroy somebody's soul. And this is what the demon says about destroying religion. He says, we do want and want very much, this is a demon speaking, he says, we want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which God demands and then work him onto the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For God will not be used as a convenience. In other words, God will not be used as a means. God is the end. He is what you are trying to get toward. So at any moment when the hearts, when a heart is transformed by a relationship to God, he is going to come to a point where he says, you know, stoning a woman for adultery is not a play. That's not going to work. Holding another man's a slave is not going to work. It has to be stopped. When that happens, 
one of those people might be a Democrat and one might be a Republican, and they may turn to each other and say, we have to do this in to two totally different ways. But they're both going to agree on the principle that slavery is wrong and on the principle that you cannot stone people to death for their sexual uh, peccadilloes. And so the church has lost the people because it is treating God as a means instead of as an end. If you treat God as an end, and this is true for all of us, it's not true for any, you know, just for the churches. If you treat God as an end, your heart is transformed and that transforms your politics. And then we start to argue over means. And that's why the left is so destructive right now. It's so destructive, getting rid of our traditions, getting rid of our religion, getting rid of the thing that will make us move forward in a way that will not be destructive and will not destroy all the good things that have grown up over the centuries. And that to me is Christian politics. Christian politics is not left, it's not right. Christian politics isn't politics at all. Christian politics is a relationship with God who will change your heart. So many of you write in and say, Clavin, how do you look so fantastic? Actually, nobody writes in and says that, but I say, sometimes send myself that email. And the answer is, the answer I send back to myself is, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's really by staying fit. And one of the ways I stay fit is by using my Echelon bike. It is terrific. It really is. It's so much fun. It's one of those bikes that hooks up to your iPad or whatever device you're using, and then you can get lessons and people and trainers who will be with you throughout the entire experience. You can do it live or you can do it on tape. They're incredibly encouraging. Plus, they show you how to use the bike and use it in different ways throughout the experience. It is just great. And they don't just have fitness bikes. They have fitness mirrors, rowing machines. They have the Echelon Stride Smart treadmill. No matter what your favorite fitness activity, Echelon gives you a fun and challenging workout from the comfort of home. Their world-class instructors motivate you with thousands of daily live and on-demand studio-level classes. And unlike their competitors, Echelon is affordable for everyone. And one membership lets up to five family members all work out at the same time. Go to echelonfit.com slash Clavin. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash Clavin. I know you're saying Echelon. Anyone can spell Echelon. How? Please tell me how. Please. How? 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 Do you spell Clavin? It is K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. All right. So as you know, Gina Carano was canceled by Hollywood elites for expressing her political views on social media. She did nothing wrong. What she said was basically true. And today we're happy to announce that we have uncanceled Gina. We have a movie deal with her. She'll be working with The Daily Wire to develop, produce, and star in an upcoming film to be released exclusively to our members. Now, I wanted her to have a MMA cage match with Michael Knowles. I got outvoted, but still, there's still hope. It's time for conservatives to do more than just complain about cancel culture. We need to actually fight back, and that's exactly what we plan to do and are doing. We need your help. Disney has billions of dollars per year to spend and to cancel and to attack us. We have you. That's what we have. You can help support us in the fight against cancel culture by becoming a member today. Stay tuned. For movie details over at dailywire.com, and for a limited time, we'll give you 25% off your membership if you use code GINA, G-I-N-A. That's over at dailywire.com slash subscribe. Use code GINA, G-I-N-A, to get 25% off your Daily Wire membership today. G-I-N-A. You know how to spell it. 25% off today. Let's stand up to Woke Hollywood together.
All right. Well, as you know, we occasionally like to bring on someone uh, intelligent and articulate to break up the rhythm of the show, a little change of pace. Uh, today, we have got uh, Douglas Murray. And if you have not read Douglas's books, The Madness of Crowds and The Strange Death of Europe, I've read them both. And they are absolutely terrific, not just well-written and well-thought-out, but uh, beautifully researched. Douglas, it's great to see you. How are you doing? It's very good to be with you, Andrew. How nice to see you. You know, when I read the uh, the strange death of Europe, which basically talks about a sort of cultural suicide that was going on, a sort of, um, I don't know, surrender to ideas, uh, illiberal ideas coming over with the uh, Islamist immigrants, a sort of self-hatred and idea, as you put it, that maybe Europe was just over and a new thing had to happen. Has I was I was really moved by that. It really was such a, a perfect description of what I was seeing. It's also been written about in Huilebeck's uh, terrific novel, uh, Submission, and all of his novels, which are basically the same novel. I, I'm wondering, since you wrote that book, if you step back, would you say things that that process of decay and death has proceeded apace or has it gotten better or has it changed at all? I'd say it's uh, continued on the trajectory that I lay out in the book. I mean, there are peaks and troughs, you know, there are things that, new things that happen that you didn't think could happen uh, and become acceptable again. Um, things you would have thought would have made more of an impact that just ride by and glide by in the news agenda. Uh, occasionally, you know, a politician will say something, Monsieur Macron has done so in the last year, which sort of surprises you in its, you know, sensibleness and relative resilience but then you know you don't see very much happening as a result of it and it turns out to be just more words intended to placate uh, any members of the public who are on to this problem so no i don't see a big change in in direction i think that because we've all lived in this very strange last year the year of covid um i think that there are inevitably going to be aspects of, of what i described in strange death of europe as elsewhere that are affected by that and the one that strikes me most at the moment is um, is the whole issue of borders. You know, I, I think when we last spoke, if either of us had said, you know, I think that at some point in 2020, Justin Trudeau will announce that no foreigners can come into Canada, uh, you'd have thought, what would, what would be the situation in which Mr. <laughs> Trudeau would say that? Seems unlike him. It doesn't he make an awful virtue of, of being anti-borders. Um, I think there are a lot of strange things like that that have happened in the last year that that will have changed certainly the public uh, feeling about certain issues and what's possible and what isn't, and uh, may even change some politicians' attitudes in relation to that. I mean, after all, we have lived through an era in immigration terms where consecutive governments of every imaginable stripe have told us there's nothing you can do about immigration. It's just a fact of the globalized world. Suck it up. Live with it. And now um, we are told that although you can control COVID by closing the borders, you couldn't control migration by closing the borders because you can close borders to do with the virus, but not to do with migration. I, I think very basic things like that are unsustainable. I think that governments have done things that are totally unusual and will have some policy repercussions. Whether it'll make any major difference so to the change of directory, uh, di direction, I, I, I rather doubt. Do you think that Brexit will do anything for Britain particularly? Do you think it will take it out of that your decaying European system or, or not? I, I certainly think it can do it, but that depends on the choices we make. 
Um, I was very moved at one point when doing um, the tour, sort of international tour in the days one could do that, uh, of uh, translations for Strange Death of Europe, speaking to a, a Norwegian politician. I mentioned something I, I, I write about in Strange Death, which is this problem that Western Europeans and Americans have these days with luck, as it were. We don't know what to do with our luck. Um, we feel guilty about our luck. You know, we recognize lots of people in the world are born with terrible luck and we don't know what to do other than sort of abolish our luck um, or sort of dilute it into the whole, you know. And uh, I mentioned this, I was rather moved um, by a Norwegian politician I said it was talking about this, was saying to me, no, Douglas, it's not luck. We have the same energy reserves as Venezuela, but there's a reason why we're not Venezuela and Venezuela is, it's because we made more careful decisions. And the reason I say that is because I don't like to encourage a sense of fatalism. Uh, and, Brexit, and Brexit is a good example of the fact that um, this is a process by which the British public voted to regain control of the levers of their own governance. That isn't to say that everything from here on will be better. It now relies on us making good decisions. And, um, and it's the start of a process by which we can be free to make better decisions. But we are also free in that situation to make bad decisions. Obviously, I hope that we don't. But but it's a process, uh, 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 Brexit. It isn't a it isn't a magic wand thing. It's the beginning of being able to to make our own decisions. And by the way, um, there is an example already of the benefit of that. When Britain left the EU, uh, we left a number all the agencies, including the European Medicines Agency. Uh, we were criticized by a lot of people, particularly, of course, those who wanted us to remain in the EU, for leaving the medicines agency uh, and going our own way with the vaccine. Well, without wanting to brag, Britain's vaccine uh, scheme has been an incredible success, one of the best in the world, uh, not just for the development of the Oxford vaccine, but for the rolling out of it already across millions and millions of households. And by contrast, the EU vaccine scheme has been a disaster. I say this not to brag or to boast or, or to, you know, sort of um, rub the noses of Remainers or anything else in, in, in the dirt on this, but simply to say this was one of the points of Brexit was that we could go our own way. And we did on the vaccines and it's paid off. Being limber and nimble and adaptable is a good thing. It's not a good thing to be stuck with a juggernaut where there are 28 countries trying desperately to come to come some kind of agreement. So there are benefits you know, already. You, you shouldn't be afraid to uh, boast about that because we don't hear about it at all. We only hear about what a terrible uh, thing it is, how crazy you were uh, to leave the wonderful EU. And of course, yes. you know, the powers yes. of, of globalism, the voice of globalism is so loud uh, and the voice yeah. of nationalism nowhere near. You know, I recently had Ross uh, Douthat. I don't know if you know him. Very intelligent columnist for I the New York Times. I don't know him personally, Times. but what? I reviewed his latest book, yeah. Well, his, in, in that book, Decadence, uh, he talks about uh, the fight against Islamism as being kind of a dodge, a sort of a, an attempt to reinvent the Cold War, um, you know, ide ideological battle and hopefully bring meaning uh, back to Western life uh, when when we're so decadent, we've run out of meaning. Do you agree with that? I mean, is it was the problem never actually Islamism, but only people's agreeing to it? Uh, people's self was the problem Western self-hatred more than Islamism? Or was there, in fact, a clash of civilizations that's still going on? 
Um, I, I, I think there's a, I mean, I don't like the clash narrative. Um, uh, I, I think he's wrong in that. I th and I think that he, he wouldn't have made, I, I admired the book in the main, but I think he wouldn't have made that uh, judgment had he lived in France. I think I, I, I doubt that is lucky like you are to have the virtue of living in America, which doesn't have a very significant Islamist issue. We wouldn't say that if you lived in Paris. Uh, left wingers in Paris don't say that. Um, ah, interesting. So yeah. it depends where you are. It depends where you are. Um, I'm struck always by the disconnect that's been growing in recent years between America and Europe, including Britain. Um, the failure to understand what we're up to. This incredibly, I'm not saying the doubt is responsible for this, but more the sort of New York Times sort of message that the Europeans are sort of moving rightwards or something like this, you know, or that we're becoming populists, all of this kind of really low-grade analysis that has even seen the American president, President Biden, talk about Boris Johnson as if he's the same as Donald Trump because they both had sort of slightly funny hair. I mean, I'm amazed by the pure, puerile nature of the American analysis of anything outside America. Uh, and the, yeah. and the, and, and the rather, the rather unbecoming lack of desire to understand us, you know, um, it's, 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 it's not a, it's not a becoming trait that. You know, uh, Douglas Adams, um, the science fiction writer, uh, moved here before, just before he died, and I got to know him, and I said to him, how are you liking mm -hmm. America? And he said, the news blackout is a little hard to deal with. Uh, and, I, you know, I, it was very hard to describe to Europeans just how big the country is, and that when New York is covering, Oregon is covering something so far away, that that is almost more than we can deal with. It's almost more than we can deal with to actually deal with other countries, which are not on our news at all, and unless they're a threat to us yes. uh, or affect us in some way, we have no idea what's going on. I have I, to watch I think this, uh, yes. the BBC, basically. Yeah, yeah I, think that, that, I think that is a big problem in America. I mean, I do think, I mean, I don't want to go bashing, but I mean, I do think um, young people in America are the most ignorant in the world, perhaps now. And It's, it's uh, pretty shocking. Some, yeah. There should be an embarrassment about that and a desire to rectify it. And I don't see a desire to rectify it. I just see um, more of the same, you know, the... Um, and 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 the dogmatism that I hear coming, particularly from uh, from young America, the dogmatism that seems to think it knows how to run everything in the world and can't point to most of the world on a map, you know. <laughs> yes, That's, that is that is a perfectly fair description. It's absolutely true. And we're talking about. I, I mean, a lot of my friends are talking about it. The the level of ignorance of people coming up and the the certainty, which I think naturally comes with ignorance. It's only when you get to know things that yes. you get a little uncertain and yeah, start yeah, to yeah. see. Yeah, no, um, um, ignorance, ignorance and dogmatism is, is the big danger as a cocktail. Speaking of uncertainty, and I'm, you know, in the madness of crowds, you have one of the best descriptions, best discussions of transgenderism I've ever read. Nuanced, mm. uh, intelligent, insightful, compassionate, uh, but not dogmatic. It really was uh, illuminating. I'm not sure I would ask, I'm not sure I'd have the nerve to ask you this question if you weren't uh, an openly gay person, but I, I think I have to. I, I, I've lived my entire life uh, taking basically the uh, Ebenezer Scrooge attitude toward other people's sexuality, which is that a man should attend to his own business. Mine occupies me constantly. Uh, and, I, and I have never uh, cared, about, you know, I've always believed in the rights of other people to do whatever they wanted sure. to do. 
when when I was arguing with conservatives, my fellow conservatives for gay rights and gay marriage, they would constantly say to me, no, 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 you don't want to open that door because once you do, it's going to be a threat to religious rights and it's going to bring in this entire uh, parade of gender insanity. Well, they've been kind of right about that. I mean, uh, gay activists mm. in this country have been incredibly oppressive, incredibly small-minded, uh, going out of their way to find businesses that have religious objections to homosexuality and uh, attacking them in the courts. And their attitude towards transgenderism, which can now get you fired, it can get you fired for saying simple facts, like a man actually can't become a woman in any real sense of that word. Uh, was I wrong to support the, the rights of people? Is there something about a society that needs to have firm sexual borders in order to keep from going insane? I guess that's the question I'd like to ask. Um, well, I mean, there is no definitive answer on this. And I suspect that ages swing, or they do swing rather clearly between uh, two different extremes on this. Um, one is to not know where any borders are, and another is to draw them badly. And uh, obviously, you know, I mean, the famous example everyone knows is with Victorian puritanical views about sex, where there were more brothels in London than at any other time. Uh, I, I regard sex as being like a geezer like force, you know, it will come out somehow. And the, the more you keep it down, the more it'll it'll spring out in a particularly, you know, uh, uh, virulent form somewhere. So I don't uh, I don't see it as being. Um, I don't see it as being containable, as it were, in that way. I, I think that there is a, a fear that the conservatives always have to do with sex, sexuality, which is precisely that if you don't have the very firm lines, you know, anything will happen. It's been a critique uh, for all time, pretty much. Um, uh, if we allow X, then Y will follow. I don't quite think that that conservative analysis has been vindicated because all we have done is to come to what I regard as being a, a more reasonable attitude towards sexual difference. I think, by the way, uh, even in, in particularly perhaps in the trans debate, this is ignored. Very, very few people desire anything but um, uh, an expression of compassion and understanding towards people who say they're trans. I, I've, I've yeah. never met anyone in all of my researches on this who has ever wanted, wished any ill will to anyone who says that they think they're in the wrong body. Very far from it. They're, they're deserving of a lot of sympathy and, and get it. There is, however, a very reasonable uh, question that follows, which is, can everyone else change their understanding of, for instance, biology in order to fit around your self-designation? And the answer to that is, I think, no. Um, and as I, I say, I think in the matters of crowds, if the gay rights movement had said we're here, we're queer, and as a result, penises and vaginas don't exist, the gay rights movement wouldn't have made as much headway as it did. Uh, it was, um, it was, we're here, we're queer, and we'd like just to get on with our lives, and you can get on with yours. The trans one is different because it says we would like to get on with our lives, and we would like you to fundamentally reorient your understanding of the, the uh, of sex. And I think that's why it's provoking a lot of um, a lot of problems a lot of um, a lot of problems particularly for women i think who have been noticing that they are being effectively biologically erased by this movement but i don't i, I don't i don't uh, i don't like the uh, I, I don't like the idea that as it were this this madness vindicates let's say sexual puritanism what, what I think is necessary is that there is a reigning in of the extremists on the so-called LGBT 
which doesn't really exist, side, um, and are pointing out to them that, that as I say in the book, that, that this boot on the other footism is very ugly. You know, the boot on the other foot uh, principle. You know, if, if, if you now have the power that the religious once did over you, and you now have it over the religious, you're not behaving very well, are you? What you talked about, what you talked about in terms of, you know, people being allowed to do things in private that didn't infringe upon your liberties. You don't seem to be very good at that. Now the boot's on your foot. These are basic principles, which I would simply say need to be reasserted. And I think they can be reasserted without, you know, returning to some kind of um, uh, puritanical view on sex, which I think almost always goes badly wrong. You know, this and the question of Islamism come back to this idea of religion and religious rights. And you, you make a point, I think it's in The Death of Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, you make the point uh, how much, how many of our ideas and our values come essentially uh, from our founding religion, which is Christianity. I don't know if you've read uh, Tom Holland's Dominion, but he goes yes, on uh, quite at book. length about that. Excellent book, really good book. Uh, and, and you have put, forward an idea. This is where you were when I last talked to you anyway. Um, you, you've kind of uh, put forward this idea of, of uh, Christian atheism, uh, the idea that we want to mm. keep the values but lose the religion, a sort of Marcello Pera in Italy mm. had that book, uh, Why We mm. Should Call Ourselves Christians. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Th this seems to me this seems to me unsustainable. Uh, just being blunt about it, I'm not trying to. Con obviously, you can't believe sure. if you don't believe, but it seems to me unsustainable to have values that are propped on something and pull the prop away. Uh, how can you sell a certain uh, series of values that are based on certain theological assumptions without those theological assumptions? Isn't that basically bound for disaster? It's not bound for disaster. I'd, I think I say in Strange Death, I think that it's a uh, temporary measure. It's a temporary solution, um, at least for now. Um, uh, I tried to explain in Strange Death of Europe what I regard as being the metaphysical religious situation which we find ourselves in in the modern West. Obviously, what I describe annoys some of, or a lot of the religious who say, well, if you, if you recognize where these values came from, why don't you believe? And I say right. in Strange Death, I think this is a facile counter to the challenge I say, which is that large numbers of people cannot because of what has happened in the discoveries of recent centuries. But we cannot unlearn what we know. Although, as I say, a lot of people in America are trying. Um, <laughs> we, we cannot unlearn what we know, and therefore, um, how do we deal with this? I say that I basically came to the same conclusion that uh, my late friend Roger Scruton came to, uh, which was, at the very least, don't war on it. At the very least, don't try to pull out the, the branches on which you sit. And, um, and, and see what happens. Uh, um, however, we do live in a very strange period of change in this regard. And, and very few people of right and left, or right or left, or religious or non-religious, are really willing to admit this. The fact is that, is that we do live in a um, metaphysical system which is divorced from the thing that gave that system its origins. And uh, it has come away from it. And that is causing much of the deep pain of our time. Um, it's why, as I say, I think in Strange Death, it's why we have this oddity where we say human rights. Human rights are obviously, again, as Tom Holland points out in Dominion, um, human rights are, are a, a secular derivative of a set of 
Judeo-Christian principles. They're by no means shared across history, and they're by no means shared across the planet as we speak. The Communist Party of China does not regard this system uh, as being in any way dominant, or indeed particularly impressive, clearly. Um, certainly not something it would like to follow. Um, so um, this system exists, it's got all sorts of benefits and virtues, but uh, um, uh, the religious don't like to hear it talked about as if this is some successor sort of Christianity, and the people who believe in human rights don't like to believe that they haven't come uh, dropped from the sky um, and uh, are there for all time. I mean, there's just a sort of ignorance and blindness on all sides uh, in our day and a refusal to recognize what I regard as being the extraordinarily profound situation that we find ourselves in, the profound conundrum we find ourselves in. I think it's incumbent on all people of good faith, whether they're people of faith or not, to engage themselves in these deep discussions to any extent that they can and to try to find a reasonable attitude in their own lives towards problems which are eternal. Douglas, I wish I could continue this conversation. I would go on with you for hours. It is great to see you and great talking to you. Uh, again, if you haven't read The Madness of Crowds or The Strange Death of Europe, they are terrific. Uh, it's, again, I hope you come back, Douglas. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks very much. I love that, Andrew. All the very best. You too. All right, All right mailbag. Now, some people think this trial is a contest of lawyers or even worse, a competition between political parties. Yeah! <laughs> I don't even understand that. What are you people doing? This, this place is falling apart. Clearly, we've just gone off the road. All right, never mind. Here is uh, from Wade. Uh, Dear Mr. Clavin, I enjoy your show. This is a, a question I'm getting a lot. I'm getting a lot of emails about this, too. He says, I enjoy your show and respect your opinion greatly. I do believe you're wrong on the Liz Cheney situation. Uh, she should have been removed from her leadership position. You said it was okay for her to do what she did because it was a vote of conscience. I disagree. There is no way a rational person could claim that President Trump called for the sacking of the Capitol building. You're right that we need to be a big tent party. However, part of that is that while we may disagree on some issues, you have to stick together when a person is being wrongly attacked. Cheney didn't do that, not because of her conscience, but because she holds grudges. She needs to be removed from leadership. Now, I want to make it very clear that I disagreed with what Liz Cheney did. I thought she was wrong, and I thought it was politically stupid. Okay, I, I, I said that. However, I have no evidence that she had some other, she had some grudge or some ulterior motive. And I do think Trump acted badly there at the end, especially in not calling immediately for the end of the violence. And so I think she was, I, you know, I have to assume that she was legitimately appalled. I don't see why I would say that um, she had some ulterior motive. I don't know why I know that. I mean, I, we had this, issue with when I had Jonah Goldberg on. I really strongly disagreed and, and continue to disagree with Jonah Goldberg's uh, never Trumpism, if I can call it that. But I know Jonah and I know he's not dishonest. I know it's, it's how he really felt. On top of which, I know it cost Jonah big time in terms of audience. And I think it's costing Liz Cheney big time. I mean, now uh, in her state, they're trying to, uh, they're rebuking her there too. So I don't see what she had to gain by this. And I, you know, I, People write to me and say, oh, you just are trying to, you know, somebody, what did somebody say the other day that I was trying not to get knocked off my social platform? I thought I've been knocked off everywhere. I mean, they've done everything they can, everything they can do, they have done, except for that I'm still alive, I'm still walking. So what, why on earth would I suddenly be worried about that? I mean, who can you find? Find me someone who will tell me, uh, who'll tell you that I lied to them or said what I did not believe in order to preserve something of mine. You can't do it. So 
You might disagree with me, but you, you shouldn't say, because it's not true, that I'm not acting out of conscience. It is a hard, hard thing when people say things that you seriously disagree with out of a legitimate, in a legitimate act of conscience. It is a very, very difficult thing to accept. But I even accept this with some people on the left. I mean, you know, take, take AOC. I think AOC is an ignoramus. I think she is dishonest, but I, I think she's sincere. You know, I think she's dishonest in what she says happened and she tells lies about herself. But I think she is a sincere leftist. I don't think she's not acting out of conscience. That's a much more difficult, much more nuanced, much more complex attitude to take toward human life. And it is a way of looking at human life that in the end, I think, leads to better results because it's more true, because it's, it's, it's actual real. So listen, I disagree with Liz Cheney. I understand that you're angry and I understand, too, that... Uh, Trump has been treated so unfairly. Trump has been treated so insanely unfairly that it is easy to say anyone who goes up against him must be doing it out of some plot. I just don't, that just doesn't um, comply with the facts as far as I can tell. And so again, I'm not supporting, you have to understand, I'm not supporting what Liz Cheney did. I'm saying that we need people of conscience in, in, in the Republican Party or we will lose. We will lose. And I'm sorry, but that's what will happen if we lose, if we just say you have to be have allegiance to Trump instead of allegiance to your conscience. Mike Pence, another good example. People were shouting, hang Mike Pence, one of the most loyal, uh, most uh, constructive vice presidents we've ever had. A guy who's stuck by Trump through thick and thin, who defended him all the time, but in the end said, no, I have to obey the Constitution before I obey Trump when Trump did the wrong thing. Are you going to tell me that Pence suddenly forgot that he believes in God? Oh, yeah, I knew I believed in something, but I forgot what it is. It's ridiculous. The guy acted out of conscience, and I think he did the right thing. And so... If we don't understand that, our ideas about each other and about politics and about uh, the world become narrow and false. And that's that's my only point about this. Not that I agree with Liz Cheney, but that I believe, I have no reason not to believe, that she acted in good conscience and that we have to be able to accept some of that or we're going to have a party that is purely focused on Trump and it will be a very small, increasingly small party and we'll never win anything again. We need, you know, to just curse the rhinos uh, and say, well, I don't care if we lose is a good way to lose. Um, From Alec, I was hoping you could give some advice regarding living in the freedom that Christ grants us as you are one of the most joyful people I've ever seen. I spent years in an aggressively legalistic church that deemed virtually everything a sin from occasional off-color jokes to enjoying any art that was secular. And while I've finally gotten out of that situation and am attending a much more sound church, it is so hard to fight back against those old ideas. Uh, Thank you for everything you do. God has used you tremendously in my life and I know in the lives of many others. Well, thank you for that. That's wonderful to hear. And this is not unrelated to the other thing, you know. Um, I think when we start to understand people that we disagree with uh, and start to have compassion for them, uh, it becomes easier to have compassion on ourselves and vice versa. Obviously, you were raised in a church and the things that you learn as a little person, as a young person, uh, stick with you. You know, they become part of your the furniture of your mind. And sometimes you have to move that furniture around and move it aside and even break it into little bits in order to move forward. Uh, you know, when you understand, when you truly listen to what Jesus says, when you truly listen to what Jesus says, so much of this stuff becomes difficult. Uh, so much of this small-minded, censorious, um, um, you know, pinched Christianity becomes difficult to believe in. You know, when Jesus said, 
you know, judge not lest you be judged. I talk about this all the time. It doesn't mean that nobody does anything wrong. It means that you don't understand the state of their soul and you should be paying attention to the state of your soul. When you're paying attention to the state of your soul and you hear that Jesus died for you while you are who you are and loves you as you are, that should be informative to who, how you treat yourself. And as you begin to treat yourself that way, as you begin to treat yourself as a child of God uh, and as a, a, the beloved of God, and start to think that you're supposed to love others as you love yourself and start to think of others as the beloved of God, the sins become less important. The sins that people commit become less important as sins. Obviously, when people do wrong things, they have to be stopped. Obviously, when people do wrong things and self-destructive things, they need to be talked to and talked out of it. But you start to think like, is it, is it really important that I need to condemn this and rail against this and hate this uh, person for doing this when instead I can treat them the way I treat myself, which is with a little bit of respect and a little bit of compassion? It makes you so much happier. This, this thing about, you know, I was talking before about Jesus and the, um, and the woman taken in adultery, and people always say, well, he wasn't not judging her. But he actually says, I do not condemn you. I the Son of God, the Incarnation of God, do not condemn you for doing something which is against the commandments of God. That's what he says. Why is that a path to joy? Well, I think it's obvious. You only have to do it. You only have to try it to see you'll become happier on the instant. You will become happier on the instant because it just takes the burden of judgment off your shoulders. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's not your job. You don't have to do it. It's kind of like when people ask me if I think this is the end of days. Um, and I always say, well, what difference does it make to me? I, have not, <laughs> I don't have to do anything. I have to do the same thing every day. Uh, only God, God will take care of the end of days. I don't even have to turn out the lights. You know, <laughs> all of that will be taken care of. Do what you have to do, which is live uh, you know, into God and stop judging other people and stop even really uh, being so harsh on yourself. Uh, and you will find it much easier to move forward to God and get closer to God because he feels that way about you. He loves you already. He loves you as you are. If you can, and by the way, I'm not saying that like, oh, it's really easy for me to love myself. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's a practice, but it's a good thing to practice all the time. And if you practice it enough, you get better at it. Um, from Luke, I'm running out of time. Uh, he says, I was wondering what you thought of the book Dune as a more general question. What separates a good story from a good piece of literature? I have never finished Dune. I've only read the first, uh, I don't know, 100 pages or so, so I'm not going to comment on that. Some people love it. I couldn't get into it. Maybe I'll try again sometime. Um, but what separates a good story from a good piece of literature? Man, that is such a good question. Um, you know, there are these books, I've talked about them before, the Horatio Hornblower books by C.S. Forster, uh, which follows, there are about 10 of them or so, and they follow the career of a sailor in the Napoleonic the British army during the Napoleonic Wars, and they follow his rise through the ranks, and each one is a wonderful adventure story, and they are some of the greatest adventure stories ever written. They are like eating cake. I could not put them down. They're terrific. Patrick O'Brien wrote the Aubrey Matron books, which are almost the same story. Uh, it just follows a, a, a guy, a, a sailor, uh, through his rise through the ranks during the Napoleonic Wars, and great adventure stories. The Aubrey Matron books are art in a way that the Hornblower books aren't. And it's indefinable, it's impossible to put your finger on, but there is a depth of human understanding and human insight in one that is not in the other. Now listen, a story as great as the Hornblower stories, it's kind of small-minded to say it's not art, but because they're such great stories, but there is this difference, this difference of depth that you see uh, in, in the Patrick O'Brien books that you don't see in the Hornblower books. So it's a question, I guess, 
of quality, of beauty, and depth. And those are things people, you know, the, the left likes to say is that those are subjective things so they don't exist. That's not true. They're subjective things in that they are experienced subjectively, but some things are more beautiful than other things. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is more beautiful than a garbage can. Uh, it just is. And so we, while it's hard to define these things on the edges, uh, they are objective. Beauty is not purely in the eye of the beholder. It is experienced in the eye of the beholder, but it actually is a real thing. And while it's hard to put your finger on exactly, uh, there, is a sort of, um, there is a sort of middle ground where you can see it and it spreads out into very uh, foggy places. So your question is one that's impossible to answer exactly, but there is a difference and you know it when you hit it. There is something almost cold about art. There's something just pristine and beautiful about it. When you hit it, you know it, and it has changed you and it's marked you in a way that mere entertainment never quite does. I got to stop there, but I will be back on Friday. You won't be here because the chance of surviving that long uh, through the Clavenless wilderness is just, this is almost nil. But for those of you who crawl your way through, who make it through the darkness, if you're all access, you might stop off on Wednesday and we'll do the all access. That will keep you going a little bit, uh, but basically you're doomed. Send your kids uh, to next week and I'll be back. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Monday on The Ben Shapiro Show, we'll tell you all about the movie deal we just cut here at Daily Wire with Gina Carano, who just got canceled by Hollywood. That's Monday on The Ben Shapiro Show.